You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and my very, very, very good friend, Stephen Allen. Said in his pillow voice. It's like you've just That's woken my up. pillow voice, everyone. Hi, oh, Steve. Steve Allen. <laughs> it's like I'm hypnotising people to be attracted to me. I'm falling asleep. <laughs> Although I suspect, I suspect it'll have the opposite effect. <laughs> Today is uh, Saturday the 15th of August. We are recording this at about 22.12 in, well, it's coming up to, to lunchtime is what I mean to say. Um, goodness gracious, there's been so much going on in the state of Victoria and the state of the world. Um, to do with the pandemic and coronavirus. Steve, um, you had something you want to tell me, and I'm, I'm, Few things. I'm waiting. First, though, first up, I want to um, heads up for our guest today. Our oh, of guest course. today is yeah. Neil Murdoch. Neil Murdoch is a barrister, a QC, a Queen's Council, works in Melbourne, has for many years. I've known him for a long time. Rob, you're just meeting him today, aren't you? First yes, time? he was a yeah. lovely guy. Great interview. And we asked, uh, we've asked Neil on, um, obviously, we wanted to hear about the effect of the pandemic on the courts. What's going on? How are they keeping courts going? What are happening to people who can't get into court, like criminals or potential criminals or whatever they're called, on remand in jail and all the rest of it. And we've already done the interview. We'll play it as soon as uh, our intro's over, and it's a great interview, so um, please stick around. Now, what other things did I want to talk about? Um, I've got a uh, couple of bees in my proverbial bonnet, bonnet, bonnet. my bonnet. <laughs> my first one is the preoccupation <laughs> with numbers. You know, I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable with this. I, I just feel, you know, this daily the number comes out and we wait for it at 11 a.m., although it seems to have been coming out at it's coming 9 a.m. the last yeah. few days. Um, and there's this daily preoccupation with numbers. And my sense is that they're relatively meaningless. Now, what I mean by that is the numbers on a day-to-day basis, there's some statistical variation that'll occur in any biological event such as this, where it's plus or minus 30, 40, 50, 60. I don't know what the variation is, but it's there's a lot of normal variation that's been commented upon. And it strikes me that we're wasting about 10 hours a day of media time with commentary on a, on a numerical difference that has no real meaning. And I'd love it if they'd maybe came up with a better number to, number to present. Like, say, each day, the seven-day average. So the seven-day average today for the last seven days, you know, those things will change a lot less and be a lot more meaningful. And also, you know, I don't think, you know, the context isn't there. Like, for example, we hear about 20 deaths and we think, oh, that's horrible. But, of course, we're losing the context that usually in July we have about 110 deaths a day. It's normally about last July there was 4,000 odd deaths, a little over 4,100. Now, I'm not saying 20 deaths isn't important, but we're losing the context. You know, we're actually at the moment having about, we're down about 12, 13% on deaths normally because, and I assume that's because of our lockdown, less car crashes, less flu deaths, less, you know, deaths from other things. So I assume it's because of that. And that's not to say that. That is, of course, a reflection that lockdown's working. That's not to say we don't need lockdown. That's not to say we don't need restrictions. It's a reflection that it's working. But it just seems to me that, I don't know, I I just feel slightly uncomfortable that we're being sold this number every day and people are getting so obsessed with it and it's a relatively meaningless number in terms of a check on how we're going. 
That's a big B. That buzzed for about uh, three minutes. Sorry. You know when I get a B in my bonnet. No, no, I don't apologize, I Brandon. I was, I, was, uh, no, I was hanging on it off every word. I think, it's, I think what you say has some relevance. But, you know, we're, we're grappling with coping with the, with the virus and the pandemic and the changes to our lives. So we're looking for some, some firm indicator to tell us what's happening. You know, we're looking for the only, anything. You know, and yeah, that's, the that, only that problem is, is hmm. when the numbers drop by 80%, the whole town's feeling happy. And when the numbers go and by 80, you know, so it goes, say, 400 hmm. to 320. Yeah. And when it goes 320 to 400, the whole town's sad. No, and, and I'm just saying, you know, it's like basing your mood on the on the damn football if you're not, a, you know. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely the football, right. You know, but if you, sort of, I get it. But yeah, and look, and I, and, I, and I fall victim to that too. And every day I open up and I think, please be under 400. Then, you know, please be under 300. And when it's not, I, you know, get a bit sad. But if you do listen to, um, I think it's ABC, they have five days and seven day rolling averages. And that, as you say, makes much more sense because it takes a lot of the the noise out of the system too. Um, mm. So that's one way. I agree, absolutely agree with you. Look at the five or seven day average rather than just the point average, the point of the day. Yeah. And I guess I think the media's become lazy. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you why I think. Oh, can I just say, I don't think yep. they have. I really I, don't. I, I think that, okay, you go on. I'll tell you why. I think they're just loving COVID because it's an easy story. They can just do COVID news all day. They're ignoring all the other news. It's, you know, they can just put one minister on after another, one fake expert. When I'm fake's the wrong word. One pseudo expert after another. Um, you know, we have every, you know, I've seen whole stories on, you know, some, some town I've never heard of in, you know, and yeah, it's nice, but, you know, they're not doing anything else. And also, but really, I think there's, there, there's not a lot of, I mean, it's the biggest story of the century. And I'm happy for it to be 50% of the news, but not 80%. Right. Um, and my other gripe is, because it's all they're doing, there's this race to the bottom where they want to do the scariest story. Mm. And uh, and again, they're misrepresenting. I'm not saying the pandemic's not scary. Anytime I even slightly under undervalue how important the pandemic is i i get comments and everything everywhere <laughs> you're being blase and encouraging people to die i'm not but i'm just saying we can have balance and you know we, we don't have to yeah. always have every headline um exaggerating everything and they do they are they're clearly exaggerating everything in my mind someone who follows it closely has been involved in infections for decades infectious diseases in as you know not as an infectious disease doctor but as a psychiatrist with close links but anyway that's just me. I still think it's super important. You don't have to write in and say I'm being undervaluing it. I'm not, but I'm just saying balance. You're saying balance, room. but I think, balance. but I think you do make an important point about the numbers. Is try not to focus too much on the daily number. Look at a five day average because there is a lot of variability just in that. And you know, and a couple of times there have been you know um, reporting errors as well, and um, they've had to make that up the next day or whatever. So it kind of takes out those um, mm. those errors as well, and just and the noise Absolutely. too. And just so, all the stuff around testing. But anyway, what's on? What's, hey, have you got yeah, any, I want to any talk bees to you about, in your bonnet? I don't have any bees in my bonnet. Although I was a, a mate of mine's got a um, beehives in his in his in his backyard, and he gave me some honey. It, and I had the honey. Guess what? I had the honey on, Steve. What did Gross. I put the honey? Oh, saldo, saldo. <laughs> That's right. I got a hundred percent for an exam for the first time in my life. Hey, but by the way, do you have a bonnet? Because I think you'd look fetching in a bonnet. I'm thinking more beret. I've got to be in my beret. <laughs> yeah, I could see you in a beret with a copy <laughs> of Jean-Paul Sartre <laughs> in, sticking out of your pocket with the title easily readable by anyone who walks by. 
<laughs> what, I'm easily readable or the book? <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, um, I was talking about that. There used to, that was actually a reference. There used to be a psychiatrist who was, it's fair to say, slightly on the pretentious side, and he always had John Paul Sartre in his pocket, and I never once saw it. You know, there's four ways you could put it in. I never once saw it any other way than the title showing. Maybe it was stitched. So it was into always it. front, title up. Maybe it was and stitched yeah. into his, into his uh, yeah. trousers. Yeah. It just struck me as a little bit of an affectation. I'm sorry. I, anyway, I, I like, over to your beat. Like I'm going to start doing it. It's like I used to, I used to try. <laughs> hey, you know what? We were sailboarders for a long time. And I used to purposely leave my sailboard on my car. On your car. We used to joke about people who bolted them on, you know, their yeah. surfboard, bolt their surfboard on the car. Hey, um, where was I? Yeah, vaccines. So, you know, I, I, we were talking around the dinner table last night about vaccines. I was just saying, you know, normally it would take years to get where we're up to now with stage three trials of vaccines. And let me just go through with a bit of this. And this is from the um, ABC uh, News website, is that we now have, guess how many vaccine candidates we have in the world, according to who? 260. Close, 168. That's not yeah. bad, is it? In like just, you know, eight months, pretty much. We've got 168, or it's actually been a little bit longer than eight months, um, if you start taking it from the date that uh, the virus started spreading in China. And why I'm coming back to that is because there are three uh, Chinese vaccines, which are... Uh, sorry, there are six, six of those 168 vaccines are in stage three. And stage three trials are the really big trials. They're the ones where you give it to thousands and thousands of people and you look at kind of, you know, how effective they are, you know, uh, some side effects uh, that you didn't pick up in the earlier stages. As I heard it, I don't know, I'm no vaccine expert, but what I heard is um, stage one is basically animal studies and does it create some sort of immune response? Stage two is basically getting the dose right in humans and stage three is where they actually do the big trials to see whether it you know, works in humans and actually, you know, decreases yeah. either the severity of the disease or Defense. the number of people yeah. who get the disease. So we know that like, like all these vaccines produce an immune response, but just because it produces an immune response, does that mean it prevents the disease? Mm. So uh, as I said, six of those... Or reduces the severity, reduces doesn't have to prevent. So six of the, um, the vaccines are in stage three trials and three of those vaccine candidates come from, from China. And one of them has already uh, administered a vaccine to 15,000 participants. So, you know, we're rapidly getting to the point where we will hopefully have a vaccine, you know, in a year or so since, since you know, since the virus first popped up, which is just astounding. It is. And so, and sorry, you go. No, so I was just going to ask you, would, um, let's just say, would, would you be, uh, would you stick your hand up to be a participant in a vaccine experiment trial? Yes. Yeah. What about if the um, vaccine I, came from... Didn't I ask you this two weeks ago? Yeah, but, I'm, uh, but, I'm asked, but I'm asking you right. now. And what about if the vaccine came from um, Russia? Well, it's just got vodka in it, so definitely yes. I drink <laughs> vodka already. Um, you know, that's the. Is, what is this? I, I actually didn't even read the story because I assumed it was nonsense. But I saw a headline about Russia's got a vaccine. Yeah, right, apparently Russia's got a vaccine. And look at my information. I'm putting. So my I was hand just up. being. I was just being racist by assuming it was nonsense. I just no, thought it was. You, a, no, you were being Russian. I'm putting right. my. I'm putting my hand on my heart. I was out with Dr. Zhivago, who's a friend of the show and a, and a fellow a doctor, a friend of ours. 
um, from Russia. From Russia, and he was telling me, yeah, they do have a vaccine, um, but there's been no scientific reportage of it. They haven't released any sci- scientific studies about it, um, but they say they're going to start inoculating people with it. And apparently, apparently, this is what this is what Shivago said that Putin, um, Putin's daughter, got inoculated with it. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I saw an article in Indonesia Press saying that the government is going to start inoculating people in January. You know, and it was, you know, it was from a government, um, from a, a newspaper website, but reporting from a health minister saying um, we will ro- roll out vaccination in January, which I thought was a little bit conf- uh, overconfident given that they haven't got one yet. But mind you, they're also telling every, he also, the health minister also told everyone that he's put himself on a mix of herbs because he's heard that they seem to work. So I, 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 it did make me wonder a little bit about how good a health minister he was. Maybe I'm misrepresenting. Can you just imagine though? Imagine if it's a single dose vaccine, right? Just imagine it's a single dose, but there's been talk that it might have to be a double dose, like you have one dose and then a month later you have another one. Single dose. If you're going to have to inoculate the whole world, which one would hope you would do, that's seven billion doses. And you don't just need seven billion doses of vaccine. You need to store them because vaccines typically need to be stored in it's called cold chain they cannot it's like milk you can't store them above a certain temperature otherwise they go off so you have to produce them transport them store them in a cold chain you also have to have 7 billion needles and syringes and then you've got to have all the health workers to administer those vaccines it's a i mean it's a it's a mind-boggling task and it'd be Let really Sorry, I'll go. point out a couple of other things. So then yeah. best case scenario. So say these vaccines that are in stage three trials now are successful. And so we start producing that. And so realistically, the earliest we're going to, you know, get it on a serious scale is probably the start of the year, yeah. you would think. Yeah. That's best case scenario. Best case scenario. So in order to get um, herd immunity, so herd immunity is an interesting concept. Mm. And as people no doubt know, herd immunity means there's enough people essentially um, who are uh, who are immune to the illness that it can't really spread and so you don't get many new cases. And herd immunity, to get herd immunity, you must have a vaccine. It's virtually impossible to get herd immunity without a vaccine from the illness alone. And I don't so, think you can get herd immunity without it. No, I don't think yeah. you can. I've never heard of yeah. it. I'm not 100. I, I've never fact-checked that, but yeah. I understand it's never it happened. It has to be through a vaccine, um, yeah. And it depends on the... Um, how infective the agent is. Yeah. Now, I read an article in the conversation. I, I didn't. Know, I didn't know we were going to discuss this. So I, I haven't actually got it referenced, but it's in the conversation this week. Um, conversation.com.au or whatever it is, .org.au and uh, about this very topic. But in it, it pointed out that the R0, the va- you know, this virus has got an R0 of about three, which means that one person tends to give it to about three people and for an, and that's what determines herd immunity and for a virus of that degree of infectivity, we need 85% of the population. So this article also pointed out, even with um, a vaccine, by the time we get 85% taking into account yeah. some people who can't have it for medical reasons and some people who are um, uh, anti-vaccines, vaccine deniers, whatever they're called these days, um, you know, it's going to take us a long time. So, it's gonna, so we're going to be getting at risk of coronavirus, even with a vaccine, probably for at least a few years, mm. not mm. forever. You mean before everybody's so, inoculated that needs to be inoculated? Before we've got enough that we yeah. can safely go out in the community and not get it. So yep. it does raise the question. 
How do we come to terms with it? Like curfew. Are we happy to have a curfew of 8 p.m. Mm. for that long? Uh, are we happy to be in lock? How long are we happy to be in lockdown? How big do the risks need to be? Um, you know, what are the social consequences of lockdown? We hear about the economic consequences, but anyway. So, look, there's some really tough questions as a community that we have to face. I'm not suggesting we should go one way or that I have the answer. I'm just saying that the debate's got to start. Do you know what we should do? We should have a show with a, maybe a few people and have this debate about, you know, because we're, we're talking about the, the reason we've got lockdown and the reason we've got curfew is to prevent disease, yeah? Yeah. Uh, to prevent biological disease. But but as we know, health and illness aren't just biological. They're biological, they're psychological, and they're social. And once you feed all those different factors into uh, a strategy for a response to the, to the virus, it might colour or nuance what you actually do rather than just having a purely biological response. But that's probably for another show. I reckon we should move on to our interview with the wonderful Neil Murdoch, QC. What do you reckon? Barrister. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's do it. Um, oh, you should, you should say, we should, should we introduce his, him some more? Did we, did we not, did we introduce him enough? <laughs> oh, I thought we were doing a good job up okay. until now. Now, now you're making me second guess myself. No, he's a Melbourne gonna, QC. Um, now, Melbourne QC, um, he's uh, um, QC stands for Queen's Council. He's a barrister, obviously. He represents people in court. He tends to do mainly civil work. Um, Neil has worked in health quite a bit, yeah. as, especially in, mainly in medical yeah. negligence, yeah. but he also does all sorts of um, civil barristerial work. And not being a, in the legal profession myself, I'm not sure what else we should say, other than that he's, uh, he's a great bloke and he's very highly regarded in his profession. Let's uh, bring him into the conversation. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. And joining us now is Melbourne barrister QC, Neil Murdoch. G'day, Neil. Morning. G'day. Thanks G'day, so Neil. much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. What are we recording this on? Saturday morning, about 11am, just to give it, just in case something happens. You know, we haven't, Neil, just so you know, we haven't recorded this for two weeks because we had a break last week because I was so outrageously busy that uh, I was collapsing. And uh, that's not quite true. But um, last week, you might, fortnight ago, Rob, you might recall, we recorded and then like literally an hour later, stage four lockdown was declared, <laughs> all sorts it. of stuff. And I almost <laughs> rang you up and said, let's re-record the introduction. But yeah, anyway, so no, that's why we're so... It keeps it verite, I think, is the word, Steve. <laughs> it keeps anyway, it real, man. Yeah, anyway, uh, um, let's launch straight into uh, the world of the law, Neil. Um, you know, we were really keen to get a lawyer on because it sort of struck us, you know, this in some incredibly key pillars of society, you know, the, um, the education system, the health system, the legal system. And we haven't, we've heard so much about health and, the, and education. We were to, it was sort of struck us a couple of weeks ago, gee, we, what is going on in law? And it's such a broad sort of stuff. But I guess we wanted to start with the general, you know, how big an impact has COVID had on law? And then I guess we'll sort of break that down. What's it been like? Well, it's been, it's, to say it's been disrupted doesn't do it justice. Uh, the profession has been turned on its head and it's probably fair to say pretty much no one is working in the way that they were working six months ago or more than six months ago, but uh, last year. So um, the change has been very dramatic and we've all had to uh, learn lots of new things and um, pick things up very quickly in circumstances where 
we, a lot of us really didn't have much idea about what we were doing and what was going to happen next. Mm. In practical terms, Neil, what sort of things have changed? Well, um, I guess the main thing is that from my perspective as a barrister, we don't get to go to court now. We used to, as barristers, get into our robes and walk down the road to a court building and go in the front door and then uh, go to court and appear in court and interact with witnesses and judges and other barristers and lawyers generally. And we don't do that anymore. Nowadays, we sit in front of a computer screen and, and talk. Is there a precedent for this? You know, because it's hard to imagine, you know, if someone had said to me, oh, there might be a situation where we can't have courts for a while, I would have thought that that's just impossible. It's like, you know, how can you not have education? And how can, you know, is there a precedent? Has there ever been other periods in your career or in history that you know of where for some reason the courts have had to stop for a period of time? Uh, apart from summer holidays, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's like psychi- everyone, everyone jokes about psychiatrists. You know, psychiatrists always claim they're so essential, except for summer holidays. So, um, so had you ever thought that this might happen? You know, that I mean, I assume not. But no, no, what, I mean, what? No one saw this coming, as far as I can see, and and certainly it introduced notions that were completely unfamiliar to us, like how to deal with a court hearing that um, was not going to take place in a courtroom but was going to take place remotely. And and we have done that in the past. Video link hearings have been becoming more common over the years and they've been around for 20 and more years, but only for routine things where people are in different cities or different regions and and for matters of, in a, in a way that has been quite convenient and designed to minimise cost and um, inconvenience. Hearings have been done in that way for some time, but this is totally different. This is contested hearings involving um, witnesses and um, people who you would expect to see in court being dealt with um, by a computer link. Was there a period I, I, at the early on in the um, pandemic where courts actually stopped before all this before yeah. you got organised enough? Yeah. How long did they stop for? Uh, probably uh, at the start of the first lockdown, they stopped hearing cases for um, a number of weeks, um, and it, a lot of us felt that the courts were pretty slow to react and didn't really get their act together as quickly as we would have liked, and and there was a lot of um, concern about what was going to happen, whether they were going to hear cases remotely at all, because there were, I think there was some resistance to doing that. Uh, ultimately, we're a pretty conservative profession, and um, there are lots of people like me who weren't very comfortable with the technology um, and the whole idea of doing things remotely. Uh, and there was there was concern that things would really totally stagnate. They did get their act together. And so we've been hearing cases in the civil area uh, in a pretty routine way since probably um, April, mid-April. You know, Neil, when you do a psychiatric assessment or when you're in the room with a patient, there is an intangible 
uh, milieu vibe that one has, and you pick up a lot, and that is 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 lost often with the with with Zoom or with with whatever video conferencing you're doing. There's that sort of intangible thing that is lost, and there's lots of tangible things too. Um, what's lost when you're doing uh, tele court compared to being actually in court? What sort of things do you not get as much out of? Well, I think exactly the same um, as what you're talking about, Rob. You miss out on um, on the the feeling that is uh, well, the connection between you and the person that you're talking to, or cross-examining, or uh, examining, as the case may be, is is much more tenuous than it is when you're in the same room, only a few feet apart. Mm. So you do lose uh, a lot of the efficiency of the communication, and it, it's a it, it's a funny sort of environment because in court, I was thinking about this and how it, how it is a bit different to to perhaps uh, a medical consultation or a, any sort of consultation. Um, sometimes in our job, we have to put people under pressure, and and it's they have to answer our questions, and we can make them, and we can be very firm with them, uh, and and there's that's very difficult to do over a computer screen. Can I just you know I just want to interrupt there because you know one of my favourite scenes in all movies is in A Few Good Men when um, Tom Cruise says to Jack Nicholson, "You can't handle the truth." And if I was a barrister, I'd try and introduce that into every case. Can you still do it over telehealth? Can you still stare down into the screen? You can't handle the truth. It's Jack Nicholson that gets to say that line, of course, not Tom Cruise. But but you get my ginger. If you can't do that anymore, I'm guessing. Well, I, I'm, it's not a line I've used myself. <laughs> You should introduce it. Mind you, it is, you know, it was the witness, not the barrister, but still. I was going to ask you, Neil, do you, do you robe up when you yeah. do? You just still do, do you really? All right. Yes. Yes. I, the, the courts have made it very clear that in the sorts of hearings which, in which we would have been robed previously, we're required to be robed now. And so I uh, sit here in, in my house, in my study, fully robed, wearing my gown and um, my children think it's hilarious and weird that <laughs> I still have to do it. Um, but the one thing most judges, not all judges, I might say, but most judges have said that um, counsel are not required to stand when the judge enters the virtual courtroom. So um, we're spared the ridiculous uh, situation of having to stand up in front of our computer screens and bow. Oh. <laughs> it's funny though how how symbols. It's funny how symbols are so important to all aspects of life. And you know, while you were saying that, I was just reflecting. Recently, my um, girlfriend who lives uh, overseas, she's been homeschooling for four months. Their, their schools haven't opened up, but at just this term. They've, they changed some of their rules and now the kids have to wear their school uniform. They've gone, they've done the same as the courts. So you've got, you've got to robe up. I notice also, just for people can't see this, obviously they're just listening, but we're on Zoom. You've also got a virtual background, which is a courtroom. So you use a, so what are the other ways you try and keep the symbolism the same? So you've got the virtual background that looks like a court. You've got your robe on. Is there anything else that other ways you can create the same symbolism that, you know, makes people put their whole mind and psyche into a court mode? Uh, well, 
the, the court hearing is run exactly as it would be run uh, otherwise um, on the screen. So, so we're all pretending we're in, in an actual courtroom face-to-face. Um, there's the old reference, of course, to the technology and it's a lot, um, a lot clunkier and communication's less efficient, as I was saying, but um, we just pretend we're in a courtroom. So, so, Neil, when you have witnesses and, what is it, witnesses, and you've got plaintiffs and defendants and those sorts and of juries. things. Juries. And do they, are they... Are they, are they all at home as well, or are they in a room? Well, together? up until up until the stage four lockdown, the expectation not a, it wasn't a firm rule, but the expectation was that um, individuals, lay people who were witnesses, would go to a solicitor's office and give evidence from a solicitor's office. So. The courts wanted to try and control the environment in which they were giving evidence. So mm-hmm. they wanted to make sure that the person was in a room on their own and that they were not, no one was trying to communicate with them um, uh, behind the scenes, as it were, to try and tell them what to say, for example, or, uh, you know, encourage them or support them in a way that is not allowed in a normal courtroom. So they were trying to control that by having people go to their own solicitor's office or um, a solicitor's office who was involved in the case mm. to give that evidence. And But that changed with Stage 4 and, and all of the solicitor's offices that were still open and there weren't many um, closed. And so people have been giving evidence from um, their own home uh, and the, the judge's I was in a case that finished earlier this week. The judge was asking witnesses to confirm that they're in a, they were in a room on their own, mm-hmm. that no one could see them or hear them, and, and they couldn't see or hear anybody else. And um, uh, the witness would confirm that, and, and the court allowed it to allowed the evidence to proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly one way that they've been trying to control things. What about juries? I, I read in the paper that um, basically we were trying to change to more um, trials without jury. Are you st- are still anything? Are still trials going on with the jury online? No, there are no jury trials proceeding at the moment, and there have been none since um, late March. Uh, and that's probably the most serious problem that we've got within, certainly within the criminal justice system, um, because all of those cases that would be dealt with by juries uh, are not being dealt with. So there's going to be a huge backlog of cases that have to be dealt with when we can have juries. Uh, and the, the government did introduce new legislation which permitted for the first time in Victoria criminal cases to proceed before a judge alone in certain circumstances. Um, the But there's only been one that I've aware of that has proceeded in that way uh, in the last four or five months um, and there, there are some in the pipeline I'm told but not many. Do you know Neil I think there'll be lots of government institutions which have a huge backlog of uh, cases or, or files to process. We were just talking around the dinner table last night with the with, I've got teenage kids about getting your 
P-plates and getting your learners. And I, I don't know, <laughs> there's going to be a, like six months of teenagers waiting to get both of those. And we were, we were trying to figure out a way around, like with the learners, because you have to take the learners at a, at a particular place. You can't take it at home. And I figure if you can do you know, court at home, if you could have witnesses at home, surely you'd be able to have, you know, learner driver's tests at home. But that's by the by. What I wanted to ask you is how do you get people to swear on a Bible if they're at home and they don't have a Bible? Uh, well, surely that's optional. You don't have to swear on a Bible. You don't, you, I'm, no, I'm you don't have to I swear, on a, swear on a Bible. Uh, exactly. If, oh, I didn't know. Oh. Yeah, if somebody wants to take an affirmation, a non-religious promise to tell the truth, then you don't need a Bible and, and so you don't need to worry about it. But oh. the the way it's being dealt with is that the judge's associate, who now um, will be at their own home, will administer the oath, um, but the or, or the affirmation, and say, "Repeat after me: I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth." Um, but I think the person who's taking the oath has to have a Bible in their hand, or a Koran, or a, whatever it is, um, if that's if they're making a religious taking a religious oath uh, and so if they don't have a, a religious text then they make an affirmation and if they haven't got a religious text then they're hardly religious you you've surely i'm teasing you rob i'm assuming you've got all the appropriate books in your house rob in case all you go to court yeah all of them <laughs> hey so what happens when it closes so i'm just trying to get my head around this so criminal cases have essentially closed down the ones that require a jury so yeah. what's happening to them all are they sitting in bail or uh, sitting in what's it remand was the word i was after are people staying in jail longer or are well, the jails being a bit more reasonable or what's happening then uh well i think um there are lots of people who are remanded in custody and who who will stay there for much longer than they otherwise would because their cases aren't coming to court um and but there are a lot of people who are out on bail um, and uh, and they're waiting for their cases to be heard. And, of course, if you're out on bail, there's not as much incentive to get your case heard um, because the outcome might be not so good and you might end up in jail. So well, that's one of the reasons probably why the uptake of judge-alone trials hasn't been very high. It's really only people who are in custody already or or who have bail conditions that are very onerous uh, who might be tempted. So, Neil, do you find in the current circumstances that you're working more or less or just differently compared to, say, a year ago? Uh, I am probably working about the same, um, but I'm obviously working from home and I'm much less efficient than I was a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Because why? It, it doesn't suit I don't know, it just doesn't suit me. You know, I, I'd rather go into chambers and work in that environment and go to court in the normal way than I would stay at home. See, it's interesting because I would agree I'm less efficient look a less efficient time wise but i would think i'm just getting just as much work done let me see, tell you what i mean so normally i'd go into the office and if i'm there for say five hours which is you know five six hours i normally go in for um normally i crunch everything into that five or six hours because you know i'm all set up to do it in my office all my paperwork's there my files there my computer's there all the access to the hospital 
documents and everything, systems are there. Now I've got everything at home. So about half the time, maybe more, I'm working from home. Now I'm not as efficient as in I get up, I maybe. So I tend to start work early. So I tend to start work at about seven o'clock at home instead of eight o'clock when I go to work. But then I'll work, say, till nine. Then I'll maybe have a nice breakfast, go for a walk. Then I might do a couple of hours at 11. Then I might have a nice lunch and lie and watch some Netflix. Then I might do a couple more. So I mightn't finish work till seven o'clock and I've started at seven, but I've still just done the usual six hours. So it's less efficient in that way, but I'm getting the same amount of work done and I'm enjoying it. I've got to say I'm loving it. I love the flexibility. I like doing two hour batches and then watching an episode of some silly show on Netflix. So are you, are you working longer hours to make up for the efficiency? How's it working for you? No, I'm, I'm not working longer hours. I'm probably working, um, I'm probably overall working fewer hours um, because I'm, uh, I'm just not able to um, work in the same way. And, and there's less adrenaline involved. There's a bit of adrenaline normally in, in my job when I go to court and, mm. and I am, in, I've been in court a bit less because there's been a bit less work in court um, and sometimes that's the way it works anyway. Uh, I, so I just find that it's it's not as enjoyable for me. And and the I don't see people, uh, my colleagues in chambers that I would normally see, of course, and, and that's something that... Uh, oh, that's a good point. You miss that whole social interaction side and yeah. and the professional interaction side. Right. Yeah. yeah, that social isolation um, cannot be uh, overestimated. It, it, I mean, social just in terms of friends, but also professionally too. You don't get that those kind of little conversations that start to become bigger conversations or, you know, even just um, in terms of support, supporting somebody too that you just sort of bump into in the corridor. You just don't get that opportunity anymore. But Neil, I wanted to ask you a question I've been wondering for a long time. Um, you're a QC, is that's correct, yes? Yeah. Because I'd always I'd thought that you can't become a QC anymore. I thought it was just SCs. Did you? How did you get a QC? Well, um, they changed the rules. Is the short answer? When I was appointed uh, in 2012, I was appointed an SC, senior counsel. Right. And I was a appointed it along with everyone else by the Chief Justice of the State of Victoria. And um, within a year or so, the then uh, Liberal government was persuaded to reintroduce uh, the title of QC, Queen's Council. And um, those of us who'd been appointed um, were invited to apply to change the the title from SC to QC. All right. And most people did. Are they bringing back knighthoods as well? Because Steve and I have got an application in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next time the Queen rings me up for advice, I'll ask. Are you sort of, this is a bit, I know you, this is a bit mean, but are you sort of hoping that the Queen will die so you can be a KC? Because then you'll have gone, gone through everything. SC, QC, KC, and also then you can start a group and call them the Sunshine Band. So are you <laughs> hoping for that? No. Hey, uh, I, know, I did want to um, ask you, though. So 
I'm still thinking about what you're doing at home. Now, I know you've got kids. Are, you, are your responsibilities greater at home? Are your kids homeschooling and you having to do all that sort of stuff as well? Is that Because I'm trying to wonder why you're less efficient. Because you don't strike me as the sort of person who would um, be frivolous, you know, who would just waste your time. Uh, well, that's, um, that's very nice of you, but I do waste time. And no, I'm not really responsible for the kids homeschooling. They are. Uh, they're both at school and they're both, I meaning they're both um, supposed to be at school, but they are uh, working from home. Um, and they are, that's a bit of an up and down experience for them. And so while my partner is doing most of the work in that regard, um, it does, family life's different. And, and um, that has its impact as well on, how we all get to spend our days. Neil, I'm going to ask you a question I ask um, every guest. But before I do, I want to put uh, an image in listeners' minds so that they get a, a picture of you. You are, you are a spitting image for Sam Neil. I've just, uh, I've just <laughs> realised. <laughs> You're a younger Sam Neil. <laughs> you, you could double for it. Um, I see it now too. I've never seen it before. I've, no, I've known Neil for years. Uh, and I, I, it, it, now I'm, now yeah, I can't unsee yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should start calling him Sam. Yeah. Hey, um, Neil, so we ask this of everybody. Last question is, what's one thing, and it can be from any area of your life, that you're doing better now than you were doing a year ago? Um, I... Well, I suppose I would say that I have got better at using Zoom and other <laughs> web-based platforms for communication. Huh. But I think that that's a relatively minor achievement in the overall scheme of things. And I'd have to say, um, I, I, I'm really not much better at anything, but perhaps I've got a bit better at dealing with things electronically rather than on paper. Absolutely. Mm. I've done that. Has it changed you personally, do you think, the pandemic? Um, no, I don't think so. That's interesting. You know, I was thinking that this week too. In fact, I was having the, I was almost having an argument with my dad this morning because, you know, oh. it hasn't affected, well, it, you know, we were talking about that sort of issue and I was sort of saying, look, at the end of the day though, dad, for us, you know, we haven't had economic consequences. I'm still working. My dad's on a pension. Um, the only difference for us is we've had to stay home a heck of a lot more. And, uh, you know, and in the absence of getting sick, losing relatives or having economic consequences, which is the big, terrible outcomes, I'm seeing it on the news every two seconds, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, and it's a weird sort of thing. So I don't, yeah, so don't, don't, don't forget health or particularly public hospital health. Um, is a particular sort of bubble. It's intense, yeah, and it's you know there's a lot going on, but um, you know as you say, you've you've got a job, you know you're being paid, mm. you get to go home, all those sorts of things. Whereas yeah, we are shielded from a lot of the um, economic uh, mm. effects of, of the virus. Yeah. And that's not to diminish the severity and the impact of the pandemic. It's just that, you know, different people are affected different ways. Different and a lot ways, of people yeah. aren't that affected yeah. as well. Hey, Neil, it's been fantastic coming on. 
Um, much appreciated. Uh, love hearing the perspective of what's going on in the courts. It's, you know, it's, as I was, as we were saying at the start, it's such a huge part of society. You know, something that is, we're all intimately involved in. You know, half those shows I watch on Netflix during lunchtime are legal shows. Suits. And, <laughs> so, well, yeah, I, do, I am addicted to suits. That is true. Um, so, uh, yeah, so thank you again for um, joining us on Shrink the Virus. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that was Shrink the Virus for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, a very big thanks to Neil Murdoch for joining us and explaining the mm-hmm. impact of COVID on the legal profession. I'll run through a few of the quick things, Rob, before giving you a chance. Don't forget to tell your friends and families to subscribe. We've got a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus. It's also on all those other things, Instagram and Twitter, although I never open the Twitter account because I just think everyone's too mean on Twitter and I don't need that meanness in my life. We've got an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. I've got a website, steveallen, S-T-E-V-E-L-L-E-N.com, with lots of info. Um, We also just wanted to flag the Radiothon for Mm. Triple R starting on August 21 and how important it is this year because Triple R's, I mean, with every all the changes that have had to be made to adapt to this, the costs have never been higher. And, of course, you know, everyone's... It's really tricky. So to keep the to keep the damn show on the road. So please, this year, you know, more so than ever, tune in for the Radiothon and get your subscriptions uh, going. It would be much appreciated. Absolutely. Rob, do you want to add some stuff? Yeah, I was just going to say, Steve, you've got a uh, website, uh, steveellen.com. I reckon we should have a website called stevenrob.com or even better, robandsteve.com. What would we put on it? Well, us fighting. <laughs> yeah, people are entertained by that. Certainly, yeah. our friends are. Are they? <laughs> well, maybe they're not. Um, I am. I'm entertained. It's, it's like sometimes I, I think it's like what I do by writing. Like you know, people you know, like family especially say. So, do you think what you've written is really funny? And I say, I piss myself laughing at the stuff that I write. Like I'm up there <laughs> writing. And I'm, laughing like maybe other people find it funny i don't know Uh, i've had that my whole life with my jokes i easily my laugh ratio to other people's laughing so the me to them you know it's about 10 i laugh 10 times harder and that's the most important i wrote it mind you i wrote an article on um laughing uh a few years ago which is was on the conversation and is on my website if you want to look it up and that is really most people laugh more at their own jokes than other people do and guess what Men laugh twice as hard at their own jokes as women do. So men especially. Yeah, men think they're men think we're we think we're funny buggers. Well, I'm conforming to stereotype. We have to say thank you so much to the wonderful, wonderful people. And look, Steve, I've got my hand on my heart because As usual, you always put your hand on your heart. uh, Although you're on the wrong side of the body, but anatomy was never your strong suit. Actually it was my best mark. Um say thanks to to Beck. It doesn't surprise me that psychiatry wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm interrupting you. Go on. Thank you. Uh, Let me say thank you to Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael at Triple R for making uh, all this happen. Thank you again for listening to Shrink the Virus. Thanks once again to the wonderful uh, Neil Murdoch, and we will be speaking at you next week. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.